What I found more than anything, and I think this holds true hopefully now, where one of the reasons I hope people like me when they watch me on the Food Network or they read what I write, is I decided that once I was kind of authentic, for better or for worse, about who I was, which was a middle-aged, you know, <laughs> made now a middle-aged man doing what I do, people gravitated towards that because they saw that, you know, I am kind of who I am. And I wasn't trying to compete with, we didn't have the term then, but young influencer on uh, Instagram or I was being me. So I think that was very important. So if I just wrote, this is me going into this and I am unapologetic about it. I'm unapologetic about what I write about people as long as it's not offensive, but it's fair. And then I'm unapologetic about the things that excite me. In a world of career uncertainty, there is one variable you have total control over, yourself. Welcome to Forever Employable Stories, where expert digital transformation consultant and successful entrepreneur Jeff Gotthelf will share conversations with unique and inspiring individuals who have taken charge of their professional lives, leveraged their expertise, built an audience, and future-proofed their careers so you can learn how to do the same. Here's your host, Jeff Gotthelf. My kids have grown up watching Simon Majumdar on Food Network. You can imagine then when I told them that he agreed to an interview with me for an episode of Forever Employable Stories, the excitement level was pretty high. We know Simon to be a judge on many of Food Network's most successful cooking competitions, but he's also a writer, a podcaster, and of course, a chef as well. What I found so compelling about Simon's story is that up until around the time he was 40, he'd been working professionally as a book publisher without a clear indication that he would do anything different. After a personal tragedy, Simon was pushed to the edge, quite literally, where he discovered his true passion for food. Pursuing that dream started with an around-the-world trip that ended up with a publishing deal and a TV shoot on a beach next to Alton Brown. There's so much more to the story and I can't wait for you to hear it. Check it out. Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of Forever Employable Stories. I am super, super excited. I have to admit I'm having a bit of a fanboy moment for this episode's guest with me today is author, podcaster, chef, TV cooking show judge, food expert, Simon Majumdar. Simon, thanks so much for joining me today. I can't tell you how thrilled I am for you to be here. Uh, Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to chat to you. Absolutely. As I mentioned to you before we started recording, it's it's not just me. It's like my entire family (laughs) is literally thrilled that you're here. We grew up on, the kids grew up on Food Network all the time. And so they know all the faces there and they were super excited that I'd be speaking with you today. So I gave you a very kind of brief intro there. Fill in the gaps for us. Tell the folks a little bit about who you are and what you're doing these days as well. So, you know, originally, as you can probably tell from my accent, I'm from the UK, originally brought up in the north of England in uh, Sheffield, in fact, a town called Rotherham, outside of Sheffield, moved down to London, you know, in the 80s to study theology. So a very different career to, to what I'm doing now with the kind of aim to become an Anglican priest, which obviously didn't happen. Ended up after that in publishing and had a very successful publishing career, which kind of faded because of some of my own mistakes and lots of other things. And then at the age of 40, quit 
and decided I was going to fulfill my life's ambition, which is what I still sign in every book, go everywhere, eat everything, which took me around the world to 31 countries in a year and really changed my life in many ways, which I'm sure we'll talk about because I ended up writing a book based on that journey called Eat My Globe, ended up meeting my wife on that journey, who's a, an American. So I ended up moving to where I am now, where we're speaking from Los Angeles, ended up having someone from the Food Network read that book and kind of morphed into this position of what I do now, which is I kind of call myself a food boffin in that sense, not the scientific sense, but more in the sense of I'm passionate about food history, sharing food knowledge, eating around the world. Obviously, that's been difficult more recently, but my aim is still to go everywhere, eat everything. And I've got a wonderful wife who loves to do that with me. So really, I've gone through these number of journeys over my life. I call them journeys at different stages. And what's wonderful is what I'm doing now is it keeps changing, even though, you know, I'm slightly older now. I'm in my mid-50s that I, you know, I'm now doing this food history podcast that's doing very well. I'm now being asked to write for certain people. I'm a restaurant reviewer here in Los Angeles for Time Out. So all these kind of things keep coming to me because I think I've created expertise that people want to dip into. So that's a very compressed version of what I do. But hopefully it just shows people that you can go on these number of journeys that are really useful in life and you kind of don't need to get too despondent at certain ages if everything's not going the way it should. That's amazing. And we're going to expand a couple of those stories as well to dig into it. In Forever Employable, the book, I talk about how I decided on the day that I turned 35 that I was going to reconfigure everything moving forward. I was going to take back control of my future instead of putting it in other people's hands and continue to look for work instead, kind of shift it. Your transformation out of regular working happened when you were 40. Up until that point, you had been in book publishing for a long time. And so around that time, what happened around that time and how did it impact your life and career moving forward from there? In a lot of cases, it's a number of things coming together. You know, we talk about that tipping point where a lot of things come and you kind of have a choice, quite frankly, and mine was quite a bleak one. So I, you know, had a successful career, as I mentioned earlier in publishing, But, you know, I'd started out in my early 20s or mid-20s thinking I was going to run a big company. And I was, you know, all those ambitions that we all have at that age where we think we're kind of immortal and nothing can stop us. And by the time I was coming to 40, I realized that was slightly less likely to happen. Publishing was great and lucrative, but I wasn't going to achieve all the things that I wanted. And at the same time, the publishing company, which I helped to run, began to fail. And one of the things about that is a lot of the reasons it failed, or or some of the reasons, to be fair to myself, were mistakes that I made as well. So Mm -hmm. you begin to question some of your own ability. Again, you don't think that you're right about everything, which is a a hard thing for most people to realize. And you realize that's going to impact other people's livelihoods and jobs of people who are now younger than you. And on top of that, you know, I began to suffer from really serious depression, and, and that had been prompted by the death of my mother who died of leukemia at a far too young an age. Mm -hmm. So what happened was this kind of configuration of all the things coming together. I could have carried on. I live and I still have a beautiful apartment in the center of London. I could have carried on making good money, gone to another job. I had other offers. But it became much bigger than that. It needed a fracture, really, with that life. And so one day, I was actually standing on the apartment of my balcony, getting ready to jump off. Wow. And it was, it's, I always make a joke about it because 
below where I was standing was a very famous cemetery yeah. where John Bunyan and Daniel Defoe and William Blake are buried. And I always remember thinking to myself, well, if I jump off, it's a cemetery, so there's no middleman, <laughs> which is one of those kind of horrible bleak things that goes through your head when you're at the, the edge of something rather dark. But luckily for me, the people in the apartment below opened their apartment and they were cooking. They were cooking, I think they were Lebanese, and they were cooking this beautiful food that came up. And I always say I got more hungry than suicidal, so I went back in and decided to cook. Oh. And while I was cooking, I was looking at all my recipe books and I pulled out a notebook and I'd done one of these tape courses, Tony Robbins courses. And I think, you know, got some stuff out of it. But one of the things was a goal setting thing. And on that goal list were things like running a marathon. I had a suit made in Savile Row. I had my teeth straightened, all these kind of odd things. But at the bottom, I'd written four words, go everywhere, eat everything. And I decided there and then it really was that kind of light bulb go on moment that you see in kind of cartoons. I said, that's it. And the next day I went to speak to the woman who ran the company, who owned the company that I was helping to run and just said, that's it. I'm off. And you know, a few weeks later, I was on Bondi Beach at the beginning of a start of a journey to 31 countries. So mm. it, it came out of real darkness. But I think one of the important things about that is when I look back at it now, and obviously this is, it's always interesting to look back. I'd obviously been preparing because I'd set up this kind of slush fund or rain fund or whatever you want to call it that was considerable, but not for retirement, not for looking way ahead. But I obviously had built up this kind of ability to do this financially because I must have known it was coming. So I ended up with X thousand pounds in the bank ready just to jump on a plane and go. And that actually facilitated me doing it for the next kind of year and a half. It's almost like you knew it was coming at that point. One way or another, something had to change and you were building up to that change. Well, I think what happens is that a lot of the time, if we're unhappy in a job and we've all, yeah, I have had many jobs that you kind of press down some of the things that are less happy about them because you're making great salaries or you're getting profits or people recognize you for what you're doing. But underneath, when you look back, it was building up and it just got to a point then that point where I was standing on the balcony where it was either I left or I wasn't going to be here anymore. And I built up that fund to allow me to do that. And I think that's quite an important thing for me because without me saving that money, I'd have still been there or doing something like that now. So I think just giving myself the opportunity to do other things without having to worry about paying the mortgage or all of those things was great. It's interesting, you know, for a lot of folks and 40 feels like the end of the road, not the beginning of something new. It feels like, well, at this point, there's so much seeming sunk cost, right? I've put in 20 years in a profession. I've put in 10 years at a company, 15 years here and there. Even if you've got that financial cushion that will give you runway for a year or a year and a half, at some point that runs out and you've got to figure out what's next. That's terrifying for a lot of people. How did you overcome the fears of starting over, just completely just doing something totally new than what you had been doing for 15, 16 years or more? It's a really great question. Well, I think part of it is as you develop in one aspect of your career, whether it's tech or whether it's writing, I mean, whatever that career is, I think it's really important to have other elements of your life that are not related to that career that build you up as a person anyway and gives you other opportunities. And so 
one of the things that came out of while I was in book publishing is that I love to write. And so I had a few people come to me and go, oh, could you write a few little little bits for this bathroom reader I'm doing on history because I loved history and it paid a few hundred pounds here or not even, you know, but I just did it for fun. And at the same time, I also had people, and this is obviously the food element of my life, I had people coming to me and asked me to be a kind of a secret reviewer of great restaurants for them. And I would go in and write things and make a lot of notes and I'd get paid some money for that. And then I started long before I kind of set off on this journey, one of the very early food blogs with my brother, Robin, which is called Dos Hermanos. And Mm. it was one of the early food blogs. As I said, there weren't many of them around now. Now I know there are hundreds of thousands. But we were two older guys. We were in our late 30s, early 40s. And we started reviewing restaurants in London. And we came at it from a very different angle from a lot of the blogs because we were older. We had eaten around the world. We were probably a little wealthier than some of the young bloggers who were just starting out and writing about their cooking at home, all of which was wonderful. But we were the ones able to go, well, we're going to Paris or we're going to eat at this restaurant. We we ate across. And we started writing reviews that started getting picked up by the reviewers in London and being quoted alongside them, being quoted along you know, Jay Rayner and a lot of these you know, really well-known A.A. Gill, really well-known writers. And so we built up this other area of influence that was completely separate from my career. And it, for me, it happened to be food because that's a passion in our family. It's an obsession even now. Before I started talking to you, my family in England were texting me pictures on you know, WhatsApp or Signal or whatever we're using these days. And it's constant. And so I think building up areas outside of your traditional career that really kind of, A, give you just joy but also show you that you've got other aspects. So you're not as dependent on going, well, did I have a good day in the office today? Did my boss shout at me? Did this meeting go well? Because you've got other things that give you kind of pleasure. And in the end, turned out to become the next stage of my journey. Amazing. It's really interesting. There's a Japanese concept called ikigai, and there is a bastardized Western version of that that I've been using and and sharing a lot with folks where basically it asks you to answer four questions. And the four questions are, what do you love? What are you good at? What does the world need? And what can you get paid for? And the purpose of answering those four questions is to try to find something that or some things that fall in the middle of that four circle Venn diagram that Uh tick all four boxes. Now, most folks will focus on the kind of the professional part of their life, the professional career. But what I love about this and and what I've heard you saying is that you were looking much more broadly than just, well, I know book publishing, but I also like writing and I also love food. And all of a sudden, well, the world always needs food, could potentially get paid for this, right? And so there's an opportunity to grow who you are, what you do, how you make a living with all the facets of your life. And I think your story illustrates that really, really well. As you were starting to head down this particular path to build an audience, to start writing, blogging, et cetera, what did you try and then what worked well and then what failed along the way to help you build that audience and that following and some recognition? What I found is that when I was actively going out to try and build a bigger audience, 
you know, I would put things on the blog that was, a uh, you know, I'd work with a company to do an offer or I'd do, maybe I'd do an interview with someone or maybe things that I thought, oh, well, this will get me more noticed. It never really worked. What mm. I found more than anything, and I think this holds true hopefully now, where one of the reasons I hope people like me when they watch me on the Food Network or they read what I write, is I decided that once I was kind of authentic, for better or for worse, about who I was, which was a middle-aged, you know, I <laughs> remain now a middle-aged man doing what I do, people gravitated towards that because they saw that, you know, I am kind of who I am. And I wasn't trying to compete with, we didn't have the term then, but young influencer on uh, Instagram or I was being me. So I think that was very important. So if I just wrote, this is me going into this and I am unapologetic about it. I'm unapologetic about what I write about people as long as it's not offensive, but it's fair. And then I'm unapologetic about the things that excite me. Also, the other thing that I found really interesting is that you can take your work very, very seriously. I'm very serious about food. I'm serious about the meals I want. I'm serious about writing about food history. I work for months and months when I'm writing new series of my food history podcast, which is called Eat My Globe. I'm just about to go and record a new season tomorrow, in fact, or season six. And I found if I was very serious about my work, but a lot less serious about me, and I didn't take myself terribly seriously and answer questions, and that also helped grow my audience. And by that, I mean it's I'm very approachable. If you go onto Twitter, if you go onto any of the social media, I am my people. It's me that, you know, apart from my lovely wife here who organizes all my calendar because half the time I don't know what day it is. <laughs> but apart from that, it's me that answers. It's my answering the questions. It's me tweeting along shows on when they're live on Food Network and all of that. And I found that worked really well because people are often surprised. They see me as this slightly curmudgeonly old man on TV shows, which I, you know, it's not some, I won't lie that I sometimes do kind of gravitate towards that. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, I'm the one who goes on Cutthroat Kitchen and one time dressed up as Princess Leia because no one else would. And I thought, why not? You know, if right. someone once in my life asked me if I'll dress up as Princess Leia on a TV show, why would you say no? And I think those are the two aspects of it. But just, I think the authenticity, just being yourself and work, and behind that, working really, really hard to build up the knowledge. So you're not like a big bright red balloon that's you know, very easy to pop. Yeah. Look, first of all, I can vouch for what you just said. I mean, the fact that we're speaking here today is a factor of your approachability and your authenticity. We emailed you and asked, would you like to speak with us? And you said, absolutely, which was amazing <laughs> and, and rare, frankly. It's not easy, especially with folks who, who are on television, et cetera, it becomes a bit more difficult. And I love this comment about authenticity. I talk about this all the time with folks. People ask, well, what am I gonna talk about? Or so many people are out there talking about this already. Well, talk about what you know and talk about it in the way that you are and kind of be yourself, tell your story. And it resonates because it humanizes the story, right? And it, it makes your human experience different than the 10,000 other food podcasters that are out there as well. So we've hinted and we've kind of danced around and talked a little bit about this idea of television. How did you end up on television? How did that happen? You know, again, 
I'm also a great believer in serendipity. So if you are a person of faith, which I am, but if you say to someone, you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. It's one of those kind of old jokes. Right. And there are lots of things that happened to me that I go, I have no idea how that happened, but they were very fortunate. So in fact, when I was coming to the US on a book tour for my first book, it was a great period of my life. I arrived in New York and I'd just written an article for The Guardian on sandwiches, of all things, which had gone viral in the early days, I guess, of things going viral. Mm -hmm. And then I got picked up by the BBC World Service, rather wonderful, you know, World Service, which I love so much, to do an interview. And I did an interview about sandwiches on the BBC World Service. And my now manager, who's here in Los Angeles, heard me talking as he drove to work. And thought, oh, we should have some food people on our roster. The food is, you know, growing and growing. And it emailed me and said, by the way, you know, if you're ever in Los Angeles, we'd love to talk to you to kind of, you know, to see if we could work together. It so happened, of course, that my book tour ended in Los Angeles, where my now wife lives and where I live now. Mm-hmm. And so we met, and that was the beginning of that friendship. And he and still going on, you know, we have a handshake agreement that has lasted all that time and continues to last and thrive and prosper and brings into it that element of trust, someone you really believe has interest in your best, which I do. And then what happened was he worked really hard to get me in front of some people, general meetings, the kind of Hollywood things that I'd never done before. And then one day, just before, you know, not long before I got married, I got a call from him saying that the people at this show called Food Network, people at this show called The Next Iron Chef would like to talk to me. And I was like, oh, okay. And I will admit now, it's kind of a dozen years on that I could admit that I had no idea what the show was because I was from Britain. We had our own shows. I went and Googled, you know, this was turned out to be the biggest show on the network where they chose new chefs and Iron Chef. Yeah, yeah, I love that show. Yeah, the show's amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. And I, you know, even though I've been on it, I can still say that because it is amazing. And so... The next thing I know, they're interviewing me kind of generally at the production company. Go away on honeymoon, come back. And the next thing I know, I'm standing on a beach next to Alton Brown and I'm on the Food Network. And I think part of that was I thought, well, this is great and it might help some stuff. And I, you know, and I hope I get to do some more with them. But I never thought of myself of having a TV career. And here I am, as I said, it's a dozen years later. And going, I've done X hundred number of shows for them. Mm. And there's a big show on at the moment, Tournament of Champions with Guy Fieri that I'm, that's airing now. That's the next, you know, another, the biggest show on the network. And I'm still doing it. So I said, I, we might talk about this later. I kind of always think I'm get, still getting away with it, yeah. uh, which I think is something. But that's how it happened. And, you know, and here's the key with that. I think for me anyway, I turn up on time and, I do my job really as well as I possibly can every time. I'm low maintenance, Mm. which I think is a big thing. I refuse to ever be a diva apart from asking them sometimes get me a cup of English breakfast tea in the morning, which is (laughs) reasonable. (laughs) Well, I'm English. And if I don't have that, it'll be good for nobody. And then I leave. And I think that's kind of sometimes, I think there might be people who are much better than me, but they might be more difficult to deal with. They might be, for lots of other reasons, but they know I'll turn up, do my job really well, and then get out of their way. Yeah. And so for whatever reason, they've kept me around. And I adore doing it. I adore my work on the Food Network. And obviously, it gives me the impetus for all the other areas of my life because people like you, as you said, 
you've seen me on there. And it kind of gets me to do things like this, which is what I also love. Yeah. It's such a great story. And the low maintenance part of it resonated. It reminded me of a years ago, in the summer of 1994, I worked an internship in a recording studio in New York City. I was going to go into audio production. That was going to be my career. And there were all these up and coming rap stars. We did a lot of rap music in that studio in the evenings. And a lot of the younger ones were super high maintenance. They came in with an entourage and they would cost the studio money and they would order food. And then every now and again, LL Cool J would come in. In 1994, he was already a mega celebrity and he came in by himself. He walked into the studio with his producer, recorded his tracks and went home, did the job and went home. And there was a reason why people liked to work with him. And not only did he do great work and he was phenomenally talented, but he was a pro and he was low maintenance. And that's a really interesting aspect that I hadn't considered before you said it resonated with that story. I will say the greatest compliment that I ever get from anybody, and I've been lucky enough to receive it from a few, because is they just go, you're a real professional. Yeah. And what that means is, I always remember this right back to being a child, and it's obviously resonated with me, hearing an interview from the then manager of my lowly soccer team, Rotherham United. Mm-hmm were never terribly good, but probably still aren't. Well, they aren't. I follow them every week. But And one of the managers said about a player who'd been there for 20 years at this point, and they said, he's a good, solid professional. He said he turns up to training. He trains harder than anybody. This guy was then in his mid-30s, which back when I was a kid was quite late to be playing professional, obviously less so now people are fitter. But he goes, he turns up, he trains harder than anyone, including the apprentices. He does his job. And I never hear anything else from him. You know, he goes home to his family, he goes home and does everything else. And that obviously resonates with me. And in many ways, it's great to be a kind of meteorite and to shine brightly for a while. And we'll remember a lot of those. But that's not always a great way to sustain life. And so maybe I, you know, I always think of myself sometimes in terms of Food Network, I'm like the character actor, that guy in that thing. You have people who are a lot brighter and sharper and huge personalities on screen but then they can always bring me in to do that thing. Yeah, look, and there's a beauty in that consistency and that reliability and that professionalism that helps people rise to the top, which is amazing. So thank you for sharing that. There's a quote that I found from an interview you did online, and it said, I'm absolute proof that when you're in your darkest moments, you can have some of the most amazing things happen to you. And I think, particularly now, it's super important for people to hear this as we start, as we hopefully are turning the corner on this pandemic and we're starting to climb out of this thing, hopefully. When times are tough, in your opinion, and you've been through a lot, what should people lean on when times are tough to push them to the next thing, especially if they're considering leaning into a passion or a next step or a career shift? What should people lean on in these tough times to help them push through to the next thing? Obviously, there's a couple of sides to that. One is the kind of emotional side. So, you know, to have people who give you great support in the right way. And by that, I mean, people go, you're doing this and it's not really that great. Or people who come up to you as, you know, people have done to me when I was younger and gone, you know, you kind of need to watch your behavior. I don't mean in a kind of off kind of way, but like, you know, in that meeting, you weren't particularly great to everyone. You were giving, exuding all your problems and none of your kind of the good side. So I think listening to people who give you a good, solid response to who you are. The other side, though, I think it comes from yourself. The one thing I always do is I am dedicated to increasing knowledge. Mm. I'm absolutely obsessed about it. 
And that can be in lots of fields. And you'll know, I've done it this morning. I've been for a long seven-mile walk. It's only about 9.30, something here. But I've done a seven-mile walk. I've listened to podcasts on politics, on history, on mathematics. I've listened to a, as much as I possibly can. Build up knowledge. And during this pandemic, one of the things I've done, and I'm a, you know, an older guy now, I have absolutely been obsessed with building up knowledge that can help me as a person. So whether it's my food history podcast, whether it's learning more about how television works, whatever it is. And I think in these dark times, find areas that really give you passion and really dive into depth about the knowledge of them. So you come out feeling like you've got building blocks that you're standing on. Because right now during the pandemic, and I'm a freelancer when you think about it, it's like you're on a house built on sand. And just by building up those kind of blocks of knowledge, it gives you something firm to stand on. And that's been really, really important for me. So whenever you're in that dark period, find something that's going to give you consistency and reliability and help you kind of stabilize. That's such great advice. Excellent. All right. Last question. And it's a bit of a test. Like I said, I did my research. So here's my question. If I was to say the phrase, shave my head with a cheese grater, could you name which TV show that quote came from? Shave my head with a cheese grater? Yeah. I'm going to guess it was someone serving, if it comes from me, I've said so many odd things in my life. If it came from me, probably I would rather shave my own head with a cheese grater than eat a dish on Next Iron Chef. <laughs> but I can't be, and there's, I did say on Next Iron Chef once that I'd rather cut out my own liver with a rusty spoon wow. than eat a dish on Next Iron Chef again, which didn't go terribly well with the chef who's <laughs> never spoken to me since. I won't name them. <laughs> right. So close enough, but like, it's a quote from the Larry Sanders show, actually, oh. from many years ago. And there was something I saw online that said that that was one of your favorite shows. And so there's... When I love... Well, because of Larry Sanders and before that, my all-time great show was the... Uh, it's gone now. The Gary Shandling chat show. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That he, uh, my mind's gone, which one it was, but... He was amazing. So... He, he was amazing. And... I was a big fan of the Larry Sanders show as well. Me too. And so, and so that's one of the quotes in there. I won't tell you the second half of that quote because this is, uh, I'm trying to keep this kind of PG rated <laughs> podcast. But with that, Simon, thank you so much for your generosity and the time and sharing your knowledge. It was a pleasure speaking with you and a pleasure getting to know you a little bit. Thanks again. It's, no, it's been my real great pleasure. As I said, I just adore having these conversations, being able to share what I know with people and, and also being able to find out from other people. So I'll take away that Japanese notion that you shared with me earlier. And so again, that's just building up those blocks of knowledge. So you know, hopefully we both got something out of this. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much, sir. My pleasure. Hey, it's Jeff. Thanks again for joining me for this episode of Forever Employable Stories. If you enjoyed the show and learned something new, tell a friend. The best way you can help us grow is to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and send this episode to someone you think can benefit from it. As always, feel free to reach out and connect on LinkedIn. I'd love to hear from you. Do you know someone who has a great Forever Employable story? Someone who has built a platform and an audience using their unique skills and experience? If so, I want to talk to them. Send me a note at jeff at guthealth.co and let me know.